The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, and I'm your social worker with the microphone. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Well, this morning I have three guests coming up in the next hour. Uh, first guest is Dr. Craig Martin. He is author of Elemental Love Styles. He's going to be talking to us in just a few minutes about relationships and the holiday season and our expectations for what our relationships are. And maybe they're not realistic because we go to holiday parties and we meet all kinds of people, but uh, get involved in relationships that uh, we also can get in trouble. So he's our first guest. Second guest is. Ted Fishman, he's author of Shock of Grey, Shock of Grey. Um, most of you know, and you may be a part of it, but America is aging, and not just America, but around the world. It's kind of a pan-epidemic, and we're going to talk about the aging population and its impact on individuals, societies, communities. And last is Sean Aker, author of The Happiness Advantage. He taught a course, or he developed a course in happiness at Harvard University. But first, let's welcome Dr. Craig Martin. How are you this morning, Doctor? You like to be called Dr. Craig, right? Dr. Craig. Dr. Craig. Great to have you on the show this morning. Thanks, Catherine. Okay, so we're going to be talking about, and I think it's really important because what you say is true, holiday seasons, people are going to parties, it starts with, I guess it starts at Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas. Exactly. Yeah. Meet people, um, get excited about perhaps a new relationship, but you say there are problems or there can be problems, and maybe we can do something about that to mitigate them. As it, Great. Need. I think there are definitely things to look out for. One of the things that happens around uh, now, happy December, holiday season, is that People have a lot of expectations because it's a gift-giving time. It's a family-visiting time. Uh, New Year's Eve is a special night for lovers to make commitments to each other for the next year. And so this whole month is sort of loaded, um, presently even overloaded, with expectations and meaning. And I feel that um, one of the things that we really need to do when we're in a new relationship is be realistic about what the relationship is or, you know, it's new. It's it's only maybe a month or two months old. And Christmas Day doesn't exactly mean that it, you're more likely to get married. <laughs> That's true. But so how, what do we, I mean, we're always, I think you kind of described the feeling and the emotion, and it's so right. We get so excited, so then we get excited about this relationship. So what do we do, though? How do we put this in perspective so that we don't, yeah, think that, okay, we met the guy or we met the gal, now we're, get, we're on the road to marriage and kids and house right. in the suburbs? Well, one of the things that's really important is to always be honest and communicate. In, in, uh, in my work, I'm always encouraging people to 
to be very clear that intimacy, real intimacy, is uh, about something called honesty. <laughs> and to be intimate with someone, you have to be able to express really how it is that you're feeling. So, yeah, we can say like, wow, I'm really enjoying meeting you. I'm really, this has been, this has been incredible. Um, however, you know, like, um, I know you just invited me over to your parents' house and I'm not really feeling comfortable going. One of the things I think that happens is people feel in that, you know, sort of big feeling that we get when we first meet somebody is that we, we don't want to spoil it at all. And we don't realize that perhaps spoiling it would be moving too fast as opposed to just taking a step, not backwards, but in neutral and saying, you know, this is this is really good, but I'm not sure that I'm really ready to meet your mom and dad yet. Or I'm not really sure I'm ready for you to meet my mom and dad. If somebody is saying, wow, I'd love to you know, meet your parents, are we going to do that? And um, good relationships, really good relationships, meaningful relationships, are able to handle that kind of honest dialogue. And when somebody is uh, capable of expressing their needs to someone uh, or their feelings or what's going on for them, the in a meaningful relationship, your partner is capable of hearing that. They don't take what it is that you need and feel insulted by it. So, Craig, Dr. Craig, are you saying that um, don't get hooked into the, the, what, the party atmosphere of, of what's happening at this time of year from, say, October to January and do things that you otherwise might not, might not do in a relationship? Like you meet somebody, say, in another time of the year, and, and they Correct. invite you over to their house or their party, you, you no, I'm not ready to go. But now you kind of can get sucked into it because Absolutely. there's so much going on. Absolutely. If you met someone in March, by the end of March or the end of April, you wouldn't be going home to meet their mother and father. You wouldn't necessarily be going to a, a holiday event where you would meet every single one of that person's friends. Um, relationships, um, especially in the beginning when we don't really know each other, have a certain <clears throat> fragility about them that um, it's important to recognize that we protect and preserve. So there's, there is this side of it where you know where, where you want to be able to say, no, I, li- I like what's going on, and we don't have to take this and like you know spread it out so thin or blast it out all over the place. Uh, and yes, absolutely, we, we, we have to be careful that during the holiday season we're not doing things that we wouldn't do at the other, you know, at another time of the year. That, that, that the whole momentum of uh, December uh, doesn't push us to going too fast. So you're saying maintain, and this is from the social work perspective, maintain those emotional boundaries that you do the rest of the year. Take stock of those. You know, don't Correct. become. And I think, you know, I think that there that there is something to the excitement also that we have. We can't say like, whoa, put the brakes on. You wouldn't do this ever. You wouldn't. You know, if somebody is 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 wanting to, uh, you know, say you met maybe in November or October, and, and then somebody says, well, what are we going to do? Are we going to share a little gift or something? There isn't any reason to say, yeah why not? Let's do something small. Or if it isn't, if it isn't even discussed and you have a number of people that might be thinking, um, wow, I just met this person, you know, like maybe like three weeks ago, should I get them something? The answer is yes. If you feel like you want to, there's no reason not to. It's, meaningful gifts can be bought for less than 20 bucks. You could get somebody a book or a DVD or something that shows that you, you know, have begun to learn who they are without having to go over the top. So, I, I think, yes, um, 
you know, the restraint is in order, but then again, it's the holiday season. How do we, how do we go into it recognizing that it's not a different time of the year and also honor that? Starting off smaller is always better. That's one of your mantras, and I agree. You don't have to start off buying someone a, what, 52-inch television set when you met them last week at the the Christmas party. Something that's that's too over the top to express the level of intimacy that you might have in, in a relationship that's very new. Do you think that... There's a difference, and I, I always—I guess I always ask this question on the show. Not always, but difference between men and women when it comes to this. Do you think women get more into the the fantasy of the holiday season, or and that they have to really be more careful about backing off, um, or is it just you know it's not gender specific? You'd be surprised that there are a lot of uh, I see a lot of women who say. Um, I just met him, and he wants to get married already. So I do think that it's not gender specific. That you know that men are capable of being so ready, um, you know, to meet someone that they that they could meet someone during the holidays and think this is it. I'm going full force for it. You know, um, I think I think it's it's. Um, uh, it's fairly common to say that women will do that, though, that women, women will be more likely to, to take the emotional jump, um, but men do it, too. So, Dr. Craig, give us an, doc, give us an example, because well, I like those real-life examples. Anything in your practice, I know that you are, you are in a private practice and you see couples, so anything that we can learn from somebody else's either mistake or something a positive, you know, something that they were able to... Uh, well, of course, if they're seeing you, they probably do have a problem. But uh, give us an example of, of showing this kind of restraint. Sure, absolutely. Um, you know, I have recently a young lady who got invited to her boyfriend's uh, home with her mother. Um, her father had passed away, so it was just going to be her and her mother for the holidays. And the new boyfriend was, you know, really just sort of, uh, first of all, crazy about her, um, and second of all, just really reaching out and projecting, thinking, thinking that, you know, oh, she's alone with her mother or whatever. But this girl had obviously been spending a few years with her mom and, and liked it. So she said yes. She said yes. She would come to his family's home for Christmas um, uh, with her mother. And uh, what happened was is that as it got close to the day, as it got actually close to the day, her mother was interested in going, you know, and it added a lot of fire to the to her her um, her obligation that the mother was like, oh, I'm so excited to meet them, and I'm so excited. But the girl got very cold feet. She realized that they had only really met in maybe late October, and it was too soon for her. It was too soon for her to eve she hadn't even met his mother, let alone bringing in her mom into the equation where there was going to be a lot of uh, judgments and expectations and opinions, I'm sure, flying around the table and afterwards. And she just recognized that that was too much for her. Yeah. I... I told her that I felt that it, you know, if she felt that way, that perhaps she should explore, you know, telling him that. And she ended up doing that, and it all turned out just fine. I think um, that's this very was... smart and good advice, and I think that that, you, that really can be a pitfall because if you have two mothers, and then right. the party's over, and then the mother of the, particularly the mother of the daughter, I have, will give her opinion about the potential. Right. 
uh, well, he's, he's someone you're dating, but your potential, I don't want to say spouse, but long-term relationship, and it can color it. And it may not, you know, the, the daughter listens to the mother, it could right. ruin it, or it could make right. it more than what it is. You really have to... Right. That's the fragility. Right. That's, that's where relationships are more vulnerable when we first meet someone, because our impression of them is not really completely formed. We have a lot of expectations of who that person is, and the influence of other people whose opinions we respect can, as you say, color and jade and alter our perception of this person who we are essentially really liking or falling in love with. I think this is a problem. This particular problem I see is a problem even outside the holiday season, particularly with mothers and daughters. Uh, maybe this is a topic for another show with you, but they get so enmeshed with their mothers, their daughters, my friends who have daughters, see I have boys, but uh, that it seems to me they're reporting every nuance of the relationship every day and the mother's opinion really gets in the way. Yeah. Um, not a healthy thing. or I don't see it as a healthy thing, but I do see it as a trend. I, I absolutely would agree with you that I that I hear that a lot that that women have a tendency to tell their mothers every um, uh, little event and and thing that's happening and what happens is that they find out that they shouldn't do that especially after they get married. <laughs> yeah, but it carries on into that. It doesn't stop with the honeymoon. It can. Or whatever. It can. Yeah, I, I, uh, m- moms feel very um, I think hurt when that kind of relationship changes. I agree. When, and I when think a daughter moms, decides, I think it's even it, worse today with the communication and then yeah. and then the, the oh gosh, you have moms on on Facebook pages. They know what everything that's going on. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm one of those. I'm Facebooking my boys all the time. But anyway, it was great having you on the show oh, this morning, so and I really appreciate the advice. I think it's really good advice for those of you who are out there, and you will be partying, enjoying yourself, but exercise some caution, as Dr. Craig Martin says, author of Elemental Life, Love Styles, and also. Uh, Dr. Craig, what is your website that we can, oh, drcraig at drcraig.com. That's it. Thanks, Catherine. Yes, thanks. Coming up next is Ted Fishman, Ted C. Fishman, author of Shock of Gray. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. News. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern, for the Money Answers Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. 
Ready to chat about your favorite soap operas? The daytime discussion is here with Dan J. Kroll and Soap Central Live. For the past 15 years, Dan has been dishing and discussing on SoapCentral.com. And now he's taking the talk to the airwaves of the Voice America Variety Channel. He'll go behind the scenes with the biggest stars of daytime, along with guest commentary from the Soap Central columnist. And we'll take your questions and comments during our live show. Soap Central Live, every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time, the number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. Welcome to The Catherine Zox Show. I am Catherine Zox, and your social worker with a microphone on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Ted Fishman, author of Shock of Grey. Shock of Grey is all about the aging population, the aging of the world's population and how it pits young against old, child against parent, worker against boss, company against rival, and nation against nation. Sounds pretty dismal, but uh, I guess it doesn't have to be. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Ted. Oh, I'm so glad to be with you. And, of course, it's not dismal. We we all compete in every sphere of our life, but uh, this is just new forms of competition, which actually makes every group better. Now, in your book, you start off by saying that we're going to have more people in the year, what, 2030, who will be over 50, that will be greater than those who are under the age of 17. So we are an old world, not just in the United States, but this is, a, as you call it, a pan, not a pan, well, a pandemic of aging people? Yeah, it, well, it's a, definitely a phenomenon that is gripping the entire globe. It's very hard to find really any corner of the globe with a very few exceptions where their median age isn't going up, which means that the older groups are, are growing in number faster than the younger groups. So what does this mean for us? I mean, you've written a, a book, of, and it's a, it's, I love the book because it also gives very specific examples of, of, of individuals who are aging and the impact it has on them, 80-year-olds, 90-year-olds, um, and, and also their families and their communities. Well, I think, yeah, it means a, f- a few things. One is uh, it, you have to think about the way this change changes all of your relationships. So if you just think about your family, you know, and I was thinking about this at Thanksgiving when I was uh, with my cousins and, and, and some family friends. When I was a kid at Thanksgiving, there was a giant kid's table and uh, a table off in the distance of very, very old people in their mid-40s and 50s. And then this year at Thanksgiving, there was a teeny tiny kids' table, no small children, and a giant table of people, you know, 45 and above. And, and pretty well populated in the 60 above and fairly well populated in the 70 above. And, you know, the expectation when I was a kid was that, you know, we will always be there for our parents. And the expectation at the Thanksgiving table this year is you look at the kids' table and you think, well, who will be there for us? They're just not there. Uh, even if the one or two are willing, they're just one or two, and we don't know where they're, whether they'll be living close to us, whether they'll have the income or the means. Um, the other thing is, by the time we need their help, um, they might be in their 70s or, or, or getting even close to 80. As, as, uh, it becomes increasingly possible that we'll live near 100. 
Um, so that's so, the individual level, but there's big communal levels. We have to decide what kind of communities we want to be to make the most of this change. And there's, as, as you know, in the book, I, I strongly believe that communities can change for the better as they age. And, so how uh, do they do this? I want to stop with that because sure. how do you do this? I mean, first of all, as you and you mentioned in the book, aging is scary. I don't want it to. You know, people, it's really scary. I think, and you bring out this point that uh, I find myself in the. You know, I'm in the. I'm not going to say I'm in your age category and and looking at older people and and they terrify me. So I I don't want to talk about it or I try to distance myself from them. Um, and I'm different than they are. And it's not going to happen to me. Of course, it is going to happen to me, or it's happening to me. Um, so I find that a lot of people in their late 40s, 50s, and 60s don't want to address the issue. It's too, it's too, it's going to be too close to home. Well, it's amazing. It's it's one of those fundamental things. I think we're hardwired not to think about it in some ways, which we do ourselves a disservice. And you know, the book is a, is an attempt to get you to look at that and and really understand the strengths you have as you go forward. Um, and the weaknesses that society pushes on you, and how do you use your own uh, attitude, your own skills, your own network of people in order to forge ahead? Uh, I on the find fear, that you, the, oh, yeah, you say societies, Ted, that it's so, I mean, or people in your around you. Suddenly, people are looking at me in a different way than they used to when I was in my 30s or 40s. And I don't like it, and I don't like it. when they ask me, "Do I want to take the elevator?" And I'm thinking, I walk miles a day. Why are you ask me why I want to take the elevator? It's sort of it's age discrimination. And you know, an interesting thing about age discrimination is that it creeps up as we get older. So, um, you know, 50 year olds are looking differently at 60 year olds, and 60 year olds are looking differently at 70 year olds, and it goes all the way up, you know, until the end of life. You know, I was at a a, a social in Sarasota, Florida. And I was talking about the social, and the, the senior director came over and told me that there was a 90-year-old on the balcony who was looking down at all these 70-year-olds dancing. And he asked the 90-year-old, why don't you get down there and dance? He was perfectly fit to. And he said, oh, uh, they don't take me seriously. It's not my people. And uh, I think, you know, if, if, if we're all looking towards the next age as the age that's old, it means that we're younger than we think we are <laughs> when, when we're looking at them. And I think that's the way we have to think. You know, we obsess about youth in this country. Uh, not all countries do, by the way. And I think we can take a lesson from those places that obsess about longevity. Like, how do you have a great midsection of your life extending all the way into the years where we think are upper years and, and really focus on longevity rather than on getting younger and younger, but really having a rich, experienced way. And, and But putting it in practical terms, how yeah, do we actually terms. do that? Because, terms, you know, in this society where... You know, wisdom isn't venerated, let's say, in the old kinds, you know, we always talk about the Japanese culture, but now because of technology and things going quickly, uh, each generation that's even 10 years older than the next one says, well, you know, you don't have the abilities or the skills to use the kinds of, uh, just to keep up with technology, for instance. Right. I mean, my so boyfriend a has a friend, and I'll give you one that. of my own examples. He has a friend who just got canned from a major law firm, and I think the reason was is because he really couldn't, he wasn't expert enough or wasn't able to keep up with the technological stuff that he had to do in the office. I think it was almost that simple. Well, you're right on the money there. And, um, you know, in the book I look at countries where we think that people venerate age and they tell us they venerate age and where family's important. You know, and all of these things are just rhetoric, even when you go into the most traditional societies. And there's really structural reasons why generations treat other generations poorly or, or, or well. 
And, and using your friend's example, um, you know, the most I would say the most unsettling thing for me in this long investigation was looking around the world and seeing how young people are retiring against their will. So if you look at the official retirement ages in Europe or the United States, people are actually retiring three, four, five years on average below those ages, even at a time when they think they have to work longer and do need to work longer to make the money. And that's because the workplace is pushing them out like it pushed out your friend. So, so in how order do you incorporate not to be that them, way... How, how do you incorporate them into the workplace? Because it's a lot of wasted uh, manpower and women power. I mean, you're not going to... I mean, this is, an, I guess, an old cliche. You're not going to retire at 55 and play golf for 40 years. No, and nobody wants to. I mean, no. we want to contribute. We want to contribute either for our own income or to help our families along. And, um, you know, so here's the proposal for that, which is when you reach these older ages there's a big tendency in the workforce to devalue what you do, to pit you against lower value, cheaper workers. So you have to arrive at those older ages in a way very different from your friend. You have to arrive at the peak of your abilities. And that means you have to be honing your skills, your careers, your wisdom, all the way out through your career. And the most vulnerable workers to the age change, to globalization, are the ones who have not honed their skills because they end up competing at the lowest value in the economy. They compete against cheap foreign labor. They compete against young job entrants. And the people who thrive are the ones who arrive at 62 as the very best they've ever been at what they do. And this is not a small part of the population, but it is not a big enough part of the population. But it has to be kind of our social project to make sure that when we're matching an older workforce with a younger workforce, the older workforce really has something to give and that, that is valuable. So, Ted, how do we do this and take different sectors, different, you know, healthcare? I mean, because, you know, different kinds of jobs or different kinds of uh, uh, corporations, you know, how we can do this? Well, let me talk about it globally first and then we can drill down. So, okay. So, we all know you should save for your children's education, right? That's a pot of money that you save. And everybody knows they ought to save for their retirement. They do sometimes a good job and sometimes a bad job. But nobody saves for their lifelong education. Uh, We expect our firms to do it. And when your firms educate you on the job, they educate you for something that serves that particular firm. It's not something that's portable. Uh, So your job for yourself, facing uh, the very strong possibility that you're going to be on the job market again at age 55 or older, is to make sure that you have your own set of skills that you can carry with you. Uh, That means going to classes, being current on technology. My favorite, favorite study in the book is one that uh, looks at people who are given technological learning tasks uh, with the expectation that they're about to retire in a few years and technological uh, learning tasks with the expectation that they don't need to retire and can continue working. And those who expected to retire, uh, you know, in, in their late 50s, they tended to say, this is too hard, can't do it, oh, my God, this is for kids. But if you told a person in their late 50s they can continue working as long as they wanted, they were cognitively smarter. They picked it up. They had a reason to learn it. So, so once you tell people that they're not going to be devalued, that this is going to make them value, they actually learn better. And I love that because it doesn't allow you to define yourself as an older person. It doesn't allow anybody else to define yourself as an older person in a negative way. 
Yeah, so how, okay, in terms of now, what do we do in terms of implementing what you're saying? How do, how, how do we do that in our own communities? You know, well, there's, there's ways to do it. So community colleges are, are really important, and they're gearing up for this, and they're actually uh, very much looking for and seeking older learners because they need to fill their, their roles with people who can pay the tuition. Um, and uh, already... In the United States, we have these 529 savings plans that people use to save for their children's college education. You can actually use these 529 college savings programs, which are tax-advantaged, on yourself. You could set aside money that is for your own learning uh, and or for your spouse's learning. And that should be an essential part of your financial plan, maybe more essential than your savings even. Uh, I think one of the other things is that what I, which is great, and I, I've, uh, I do this a lot, just in terms of my own work, is you taking this online learning. I mean, you have the opportunity, and especially people perhaps who are older and I don't want to say disabled, or they have physical limitations, or, or even not, but less energy. You take these online courses. And it's really an easy way to keep up with whatever your particular profession is or job. And you don't have to be driving a half an hour, uh, you know, to go to a class and come back again. It's, it's, I mean, I think taking advantage of that is really key as one age, any time, but particularly in the aging population. Well, I love that idea. And um, there's some similar things in, in the book that talk about how technology can really make up for some of the things that are harder for you when you're older. So if your judgment is good and you're a great manager, um, but younger people are, are more encyclopedic in their knowledge, that's not a problem for you anymore. All you have to do is turn to your computer and go to this vast, endless encyclopedia that exists on your laptop, and you have exactly the same knowledge base as a younger employee, but they don't have your wisdom base or your judgment base. Yeah. So in uh, essence, in some jobs and in some professions, you can be way ahead of the younger population because it's just as you say you can get the information the information is there and it's accessible and you have all of that experience which they don't have Catherine I I would even go further Um, I would say you're you're ahead you're not just even with the younger base you're you're ahead in some essential ways that are not reproducible in a younger group and that's why when you get to these older ages you can demand at least the salary you're getting, and maybe continue to, to get more and more. Great. Well, we're going to take a short break. Fascinating conversation. We're talking to Ted Fishman, author of Shock of Gray. We'll be back in a few minutes. Don't go away. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. You're listening to World Talk Radio. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. If you want to get ahead, you have to stand out from the crowd, the clutter, and the competition. Are you? Tune in each week for Standing Out with Lauren Saunier. Lauren and her guests have the secrets that can help you and your business get noticed, get attention, and achieve your desired results no matter where you're starting from. Standing Out with Lauren Saunier, live every Friday at 12 noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Get ready to be a marketing machine. 
Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rock and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to the stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. If you're just joining us, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. It's The Catherine Zox Show. And joining me this morning is Ted Fishman. We're talking about his new book, The Shock of Gray, which is about the aging population, not only here in the United States, but around the world and the impact it has on all of us. Ted, you, um, you, you mentioned in the book there are certain communities that view individuals who are aging in a positive light, and then there are those communities that don't. Let's talk about the differences between the two. And- yeah, so I'm from the Midwest. I'm from Chicago, which is a great, vital city. Um, one one thing I see around Chicago is that a lot of young people from imploding cities in the Midwest, old industrial cities in the Midwest, come to Chicago, and, and they're leaving places that they think are too old. And so I explored some of these older cities around the Midwest to see why they felt they were old. And one of the cities I looked at was Rockford, Illinois, which used to be a very, very wealthy town, one of the 25 richest in America, but it's been really hit by globalization and the moving of manufacturing jobs out. So people in their 50s are losing their jobs. There's a lot of, uh, of minimum wage work for older people that used to be great industrial work. And everything in the town tells you you're old at age 50, and the town is trying to reinvent itself as a younger place. It may succeed, but it's probably got 10 or 20 years to go before it gets there. And I contrasted that with uh, Sarasota. So if Rockford's old because the young people are leaving and the jobs are leaving, Sarasota is old because older people choose it, and they choose it not to be old. They choose it, I love this, they choose it to be young. So people in their late 50s, 60s, mid-60s are moving there to rejuvenate themselves. And the culture there is around around active lifestyle. And um, when you get there at 65, you're a kid and you feel like a kid and it has uh, psychological benefits and health benefits and, and you're out walking. And there's actually social pressure to be engaged in social organizations and charities and cultural organizations to get out walking, to kayak and canoe. And as a result, this city has found its economic rejuvenation in an aging population. It's become kind of the Silicon Valley of aging where people are experimenting with anything and everything they can do to serve this population that wants to make the most of this life and refuses to be uh, defined from the outside or the inside as well, past their due date. Sarasota has been on my radar. I used to go to Sarasota with my kids and visit the grandparents, and it was one of those retirement kinds of communities. Recently, I noticed I've had several guests on the show, authors, filmmakers, you know, people who are nationally and internationally known, like yourself, 
and two or three of them have been from Sarasota. One, uh, unknowingly, they were they were neighbors. They were you know they lived within a block of one another. So it kind of caught my eye. These people are down there. They're you know not just doing like you described the physical activity, but there's a lot of intellectual stuff. There's a lot of you know, and it's not just this small community. I mean, they're connected to the 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 wider um, the wider community of of, of do you know of people who are um, successful doing things. People, as you say, 55 and over. Boy, are they ever. You know, so, you know, I write for the New York Times. I write for Harper's Magazine. I write big pork chop books on world affairs. I go down there, and the people there are so well informed. I'm humble. (laughs) There's so much adult education there, and people are so hungry for it, and they have world leaders come in uh, to to address them on. There's uh, so many programs for them. And, these public lectures are so popular that now they send them on closed-circuit TV to other uh, retirement communities, and they fill the auditoriums with closed-circuit TV the programs that are happening down the street. It's, well, is there it's a phenomenal. formula for that, Ted, to follow? I mean, okay, say, let's say Sarasota is an example of one of those old retirement communities. You've got retirement communities in Phoenix and the Southwest and other ones in Florida. What can they do to kind of replicate what's going on in Sarasota? It's the social aspect that is the most key. So, and, and it, it comes from top down. What are the cultural institutions doing? What are the local universities doing? Um, what are the, the places where... Uh, older people come to live together um, when they don't want to live off on their own. What are they doing to keep people active? And um, once you create that environment, then people tell their friends back home that this is what's happening in our community. Uh, Come here. Um, But, you know, Americans are moving out of their communities less and less, so you need communities with aging populations that are aging from within to have these very same values. And right now, you know, the cultural life of communities, particularly education uh, and physical activity, is largely centered around the young. Uh, this has to be rejiggered. The young won't be there in, in such big numbers, but the older population will really need this and crave this. And, and it's up to us as citizens to say, look, uh, we need these very same programs. Uh, the value of education, the value of social engagement doesn't stop at a certain age. Well, you give examples in the book, and individual examples, and I was fascinated by these. One in particular, this man in his 90s, Henry, who lives in your hometown, Chicago, and some and and what happened to him. It's all it's the negatives of what happened to him, the age discrimination, how people took advantage, and we need to know that so that that doesn't happen, so that we're aware of it as as well as individuals who are aging and also as with our parents and our grandparents because it's really it was kind of horrendous i think well this is another reality so the older population is enormously diverse we're diverse in terms of what we can do we're converse we're diverse in our cognitive ability uh in the kinds in the in the kinds of diseases we have and we don't have no other age groups are quite as diverse so henry's in his 90s things happen to people in his 90s he was an industrial worker his whole life. He had an employee stock ownership plan. Um, and even as a blue-collar worker, he amassed, just because of his longevity and because he was frugal, $4 million in savings. So a loved one of his died, his brother who he lived with, and he started wandering the neighborhood, kind of talking freely about what he had and who he was. And a number of predators came his way, got him to sign documents, powers of attorney. Uh, it looked very... Dangerous, like all of his savings were going to disappear. A relative who was actually part of one of these schemes but was edged out alerted the Cook County Public Guardian, which is a public office that helps people uh, who are alone. 
they stepped in. Uh, they saved his money. Uh, they renovated his house for him. It was a pit. Um, and they provided him with the kind of daily care he needed. Now, we can do this on a small-scale level now, and some communities do. Um, but what the Cook County Guardian told me was, we are facing such an explosion of people in this age group that none of the public structures we have are, are equipped to deal with the kind of needs that are coming down the way, and it's something we have to open our eyes to. You know, he, he was not a poor person. He didn't need public assistance. All he needed was help and protection. Uh, but we, we, we are ill-equipped to provide even that right now. Well, I think you mentioned in the book it was this person who facilitated uh, him, him getting help was a social worker, because I honed in on that. Maybe that's something being, you know, I'm your social worker with a microphone. This is something that social workers perhaps need to address and needs to be addressed in schools of social work where, where there are graduate students, MSW students, and bachelors of science students, and uh, another, I say another course, but I mean, it may be because you do have to, as you say, there are lots of ways to address the problem, and the universities are one of them, and maybe particularly schools of social work or social welfare. Well, you know, we live in a world where economists are often given the microphone, but in the aging world, social workers are really the heroes. And, uh, you, you know, I come from Chicago, where social workers made the city great, Jane Addams. Um, and in Sarasota, the leading voices that brought together the city's resources and coalesced them around an active aging community were the social workers in the community. They are very involved, not only with their clients, but at a, on a civic level, in City Hall, with the economic development people. Um, it's it's an enormous resource, and also... It, it, it's, a, it's a field that's based in social science, but also in, in care. It, it's empirical, but it's empathic, and I'm all for it. And I, I'm, 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 I think I, I would love to have you as a champion for that, too. Oh, great. And I'd love to be that. I mean, you sort of opened my eyes to all of this. I think another resource is obviously, and maybe this is more obvious, but hospitals and, and doctors and healthcare facilities have to be on top of this. I mean, they don't have, instead of just being concerned with a, an, age, an aging person's you know, gallbladder or heart or blood pressure, this has to be a part of the, of the care, I think, that, that uh, elderly, I don't like the word elderly, but that older people get when they get, uh, go to a hospital or go to a health care facility. Well, wellness is so much more than just a checkup. Yeah. Um, wellness really is... Um, comprehensive uh, look at is a, is a person uh, engaged in the kind of social network that will help them and help them fight the big scourge of, of late life, which is loneliness. Uh, of course, social workers are very keen on this, too. Uh, is a person active? Are they getting out and walking? Are they entertained? Um, you know, a lot of care right now uh, keeps people kind of tottering along, but it, it's disabling. Uh, there's a whole different kind of care that can be enabling. Yeah, and I think also, Ted, some of this stuff, and, and, and this is changing, but you know, just keeping people entertained or doing things for the sake of entertainment becomes foolish. I mean, just because a person is aging, it doesn't mean that they're not intelligent or they, they didn't go to college or they weren't successful or, in your case, you graduated from Princeton. Uh, you're still going to be that person when you're 80 years old. And so, like, doing foolish kinds of stuff, uh, is activity for activity's sake is not where we want to go, do we? 
No, I mean, you want activity for activity's sake because people deserve leisure, but you're right, it's not enough. So in Sarasota, not coincidentally, it has the highest per capita uh, count of charitable and cultural not-for-profit organizations in the country. And that's because when people get down there, they don't want to just hit the golf course. They don't want to just lay on the beach. They want to engage. They want to give back. They want to feel they're connecting across generations. And I think the whole concept of mentoring, which is, I think, really gaining a foothold, and I would assume so in Sarasota as well, is a really positive way of accomplishing this and keeping people engaged, and more than just engaged, but in viable members of our society so that, um, you know, I see it all the time online at the university, but mentoring, teaching those skills to the next generation, your skills, whatever they are. Well, when you ask people what they think about older people, when you ask younger people, they, they have two attitudes. They have very respectful, kind, affectionate attitudes towards the older people they know, who they know as people, who they have a, a view of the continuity of their life have access to their wisdom. And then there's a different view of the older people they don't know who are easily dismissed and rudely treated or rudely regarded. And it's a huge disconnect. How come the older people you know are so great and the older people you don't know are so horrible? You know, what what you get through mentoring is is, is you break through that divide and you get people to see people more comprehensively. Well, I could go on and on and I'm sure my listeners could too so I, I want they can I wanted them to know that they can buy your book shock of gray amazon.com bookstores everywhere and go to your website so would you give us your website yeah it's tedcfishman.com there's all kinds of resources there it's a around the world look at aging everywhere great stories from Japan Spain America China Pleasure having you on the show this morning. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Sean Aker is coming up. He's author of The Happiness Advantage, The Seven Principles of Positive Psychology That Fuel Success and Performance at Work. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Emotional intelligence has been documented to be the most important skill for a leader to move up in an organization. Leaders Playbook will unpack what emotional intelligence is, why it is important, and how you can raise your emotional intelligence for yourself, your direct reports, and your teams. Join Dr. Relly Nadler every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern, to the Leaders Playbook on the Voice America Business Channel. Your success, your success could depend on it. Women in business today face many challenges in advancing their careers and reaching their goals. There are corporate executives, entrepreneurs, and business owners that have made their mark in business. Now you can learn their secrets and tips. Listen to Women Mean Business as your host, Bonnie Marcus, explores how to thrive in the business environment, navigate the workplace, and climb the corporate ladder. Listen live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel and effectively promote yourself today. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com
You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox. Now we're back. Your social worker with a microphone on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me in, well, this is my last guest, Sean Aker. He is the, he helped design, if you can imagine this, the famed happiness course at Harvard University. So you could take a happiness course at Harvard University and is the author of The Happiness Advantage, The Seven Principles of Positive Psychology that Fuel Success and Performance at Work. Uh, Sean, well, should be happy because he graduated magna cum laude from Harvard, very impressive, and has a master's degree from Harvard Divinity School in Christian and Buddhist Ethics. Uh, welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Sean. Thank you. It's so nice to be here. And we can go to seanacre.com. That's your website, right? That's correct, or happinessadvantage.com. Well, we all want to be happy. I mean, I wake up in the morning, I want to be happy. I'm not always happy, but um, I tend to have that happy kind of a persona, I think. Um, I look at the good side of things. But one of the things that I want you to explain in the book that you talk about in the book is, and it's sort of turned around from our usual way of thinking that happiness fuels success. It's not the other way around. Mm. Happiness fuels success, not the other way around. We usually think it's that we're successful and we make a lot of money and we do all, do all, you know, do well with our kids or whatever that we'll be happy. But that's really not the way it works. Yeah, yeah I think it's very surprising. I mean, even as you're uh, giving my introduction, which is very kind, um, it, you even joked. Well, of course he should be happy. He was magna cum laude at Harvard. Yeah. And when, when I have my uh, friends, um, I grew up in a small town in Texas. When they come up to Harvard, they know that I study happiness, and they oftentimes look around at the beautiful buildings and all the resources and the opportunity that are facing these students, and they say, you know, Sean, why are you wasting your life studying happiness at Harvard? Because seriously, what does a Harvard student possibly have to be unhappy about? They've got everything. And... You know, over the past year, I've, I've traveled to 44 different countries working with people, uh, farmers in Zimbabwe who lost their land, and um, school children in, in shanty towns in South Africa. And maybe I should be studying happiness only at those places, not with people who have everything. But what we're finding is that people can have an extraordinary amount of success and never actually feel happiness. And the reason for that is that. The formula for success that we oftentimes use is if I work hard right now, then I'll be more successful and I'll achieve my goals, and then after that I'll be happier. So if I can get through these 8 to 14 hours of work today, then I'll be happier. Or if I you know, can hit my sales target, I'll be happier. Once my kids are in college, then I'll feel happier. And what we find is happiness seems to be so extraordinarily elusive in our society because our brains just change what success looks like every time we have a victory. So if you do get good grades in school, you'll just change what success means to needing better grades next semester and then getting a, a, a good job and then you know, going back to school and then getting, better, getting a better job and then you have to get your kids to a good school. So what happens is happiness gets pushed over the horizon then if happiness is always after success. But the real discovery that we've had over the past 10 years in the field of positive psychology is the discovery that our brain works significantly better when it's positive than it does at negative, neutral, or stressed, which means that the formula is backwards, that if we can find a way of becoming more positive in the midst of our work, 
while we're at school, in the midst of the challenges we have with this economy, what we find is only then do our success rates then rise. We're able to work harder, faster, more intelligently because our brains are actually designed to work better when we're positive in the midst of the challenge instead of waiting for the success to come. Give us an example of that. Put that into behavioral terms. What does that mean, being happy in the midst of accomplishing what we are doing? So let's take an example of somebody who wakes up and has 10 hours of work today, and they have to drop their kids off at school. They think, you know, as soon as I can get all these errands done and as soon as I can get my work done and I get home, then I'm going to be happier. Or maybe... Maybe once I'll wait till the weekend, then then I'll really be happy. Or when I get that promotion, then I can feel happier. But until then, there's there's no point in being happy, right? The economy's not great. I've got all this work to do. I've got a stressful job. I'm not sure. I'm anxious about for my children. What happens then is the whole time that they're at work, or the whole time they're spending time with their children, if they're delaying happiness till some distant future point, which we never actually get to our brains are underperforming what they could be. We find that when children are primed to be positive, they put blocks together faster. When doctors are happy, we find that they do their diagnoses up to 50% faster and more accurately. We find that if you take intelligence tests and your brain is positive, you score better at every dimension of intelligence we know how to test. So that means as you're going throughout your day, if you're waiting to be happy, That means your brain is not actually achieving its full potential in terms of its creativity, the amount of possibilities you'll see during the day, and your brain will be scanning the world for all the negative things instead of the things that should make you grateful for the life that you have and for seeing the possibilities of making a better reality. You know, I'm listening to you and I'm thinking that that resonates. It's so true. And if you look at children, I, I have three boys who are grown up now, but when they were little boys and... I had planned some wonderful activity for them, let's say. I'm going to take them to, a, 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 I'll say, a Broadway show. And yet I think that's going to make them happy, and yet they're in the hotel room playing with each other and running around and having a great time. They're really happy doing that, not necessarily what I've planned, this, what I consider the, the next step in, in, to, to uh, helping them achieve happiness and because they're experiencing in the here and now. They're not letting the other stuff get in the way. Is that You know what I'm saying? And I think that that kind of explains what you're saying in terms of adults or grown-ups as well. It's a fantastic example. When I oftentimes are working with big companies, and I spend about 70% of my time now going into companies and working with some of their senior leaders about how they can create more positive teams. When I describe the stories of uh, the time I was spent spending teaching and living at Harvard, they say, oh, those students, those kids, they, they have no idea what they're missing. That was the happiest times of my life, and they think back nostalgically to it and think, oh, they must enjoy all that freedom that they have and enjoy getting to just sit and listen to all these great professors. Um, and what they're doing is they're, they're thinking, you know, back to the time where they thought that, of course, if somebody has work, that they'd still be able to be able to have fun. And what we're finding is many of these students aren't focused on the privilege of where they are or getting to enjoy the happiness in those moments because they're still thinking off into the future. They're thinking the reverse. They're thinking, you know, once I can become a partner of a law firm or a CEO, then I'm really going to be happier. And then we never actually achieve that happiness in the moment. The same thing we had with Thanksgiving. It's easy for us to 
get all focused on, well, once we do all these hours and hours of preparation, then I'll be happy once we get to sit down and have that Thanksgiving meal, which means we miss out on hours and hours of happiness preparing that food with our family and enjoying those moments and maybe going slower and realizing just what you said, that there's a happiness in the present that if we're not attending to or searching for, our brains miss out on that reality. Enjoy the pro- enjoy the pro- in this case, like you say, enjoy the process. Enjoy the process of of going to the grocery store with your mother or your kid or cooking the the turkey or whatever it is. It's not just the end result. And I think another piece to that, and you're talking about the the kids and let's say at Harvard Law School, who you know once they get that, they're in the the law firm. They they want to be in and become senior partner. They'll be happy. But along the way, they forget. You know, they, people get sick, a parent dies, stuff happens, and it never, and it never, nothing ever turns out the way you think it's going to turn out, and you can't control everything. So I, I think that people get caught up in thinking that they have, you know, a crystal ball to the end result, and they don't because stuff happens, and then you haven't, as you say, enjoyed the happiness along the way. You're so right. I mean, think about and look around at the people you know. Uh, oftentimes. Many of the students that I might be working with are say, oh, if I could just get into Harvard, get, it, get into a college, once I get accepted, then I'll be happier. Well, that would mean that everyone who goes to college is extraordinarily happy, but that's clearly not the case. We know or that's once, not true. Or once they get a, a job, well, we know there's, you know, that conference board survey came out this year and showed people are more unhappy in their jobs than in the history of polling. There's more job dissatisfaction. So that's not it. So maybe it's becoming the CEO or a partner. Well, how many unhappy, extraordinarily successful business people do we know? We know lots of them. So I think the formula just clearly doesn't work. But there's an exciting extra part to it, which is that it's not just that the formula doesn't work. It goes in the other way, that happiness then has no relation. It's not that it doesn't have a relationship to success. Happiness is actually a very big predictor of future successes, So what that means is we need to find a way of training our brains to become more positive in the present. And when we do that, what we find is we actually achieve many of those successes we were hoping for even easier because our brain is able to work at its full capability. That's a great note to leave on, which we have to because we only have about 45 seconds to go. But uh, a reminder to listeners, you can go to Sean's uh, website at Sean, and it's a capital S, and it's a capital A is last name, SeanAker.com, for more information, to buy the book, to find out more of what he's doing, because he gives talks around the country. Great having you on the show today. Thank you so much. And have a happy holiday. <laughs> you too. Thanks. Uh, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Hope you had a, a nice morning with us. Have a great uh, A great week, and uh, we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.